Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm excited about the um, guest that we have today, someone from Europe, just like myself. So uh, it's always, always great to meet with uh, with people that are from that part of the world. So I guess without further ado, Stefan Heck, welcome to the show today. Thank you very much. It's great to be on the show. So how was uh, life growing up in Austria? Oh, it was wonderful. I'm from a small town up in the mountains. Um skiing every year, learned to ski at age two and a half, uh, basically shortly after walking. And it's very bucolic. Uh, it's grown a lot since then. Uh, it's been a long time, of course, uh, but it's still a very lovely landscape. I love going back. So what, what brought you to the U.S.? Um, I came to the U.S. twice, actually. Once as a teenager, my dad worked for the United Nations for a couple of years. So we lived in New York, where you are now. Um, and then the second, I went back to Austria for high school. And then the second time I came for college uh, to Stanford um, and then stayed on for graduate school and settled here in California. So I got to ask you, what, what is symbolic systems, which is what you studied at Stanford? Yes, that's, uh, it's basically artificial intelligence. Um, at that time, AI was, was not as popular a term, um, but it's uh, linguistics, computer science, AI, psychology. Uh, and I did some neuroscience as well, studying human, human right. thought processes. Because we're talking about the early 90s, so definitely AI was not even in the picture for many people. We're talking about the late 80s, actually. Wow. <laughs> date myself, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And and then after that, you did your PhD as well in cognitive, cognitive science. Yes, and, and uh, it was at that time called Parallel Distributed Processing, now much better known as Deep Learning. Um, and so I did... Uh, Neural networks on a Next machine, actually, which was the hot computing platform of the day long ago, um, and doing my own code uh, running uh, computer vision networks. Uh, it was great fun. I learned a lot. Um, so, and philosophy. So looking at the ethics of AI and looking at how concepts arise, uh, which is all coming handy now, 30 years later. So. <laughs> I can't imagine. I mean, putting AI and deep learning on philosophy, man, I mean, you must be a, a, someone, to a, a force to be reckoned with. Well, it's an unusual background, but it's good preparation for uh, being an entrepreneur, uh, delivering AI for safety today. Absolutely. And you have, uh, you know, one thing that stood out for me was that you have a really diverse background. I mean, you 
your first job was uh, was really as a researcher, but then you did a little bit of Apple, McKinsey. So I want to ask you here, McKinsey, because the uh, there's many people that I interview, you know, many many successful founders and also founders that are that are good friends. They go to Bain or McKinsey. I mean, what what do you guys learn there that is just is just so handy to to build and scale a business? It's all about business. I mean, I I joined as you described, right? I ran my own startup um, doing web design and online presence in the very early days of the internet. This is this is now mid nineties, uh, and it, for me, it was a way to pay my way through graduate school. But I realized very quickly I did not know enough about business uh, to really run a successful business at scale. Um, my my company at that time was very small. So since I didn't have an MBA, I did a technical PhD. Um, I saw. Uh, McKinsey is a chance to learn about business. Like many people, I joined thinking I would be there for three or four years, you know, pay back my student loans, learn a lot about business, and then go off into my own thing. I fell in love with the place uh, because it's such a stimulating environment. You do, you know, different projects every few months. You're watching companies grow. You're helping to dig into their toughest problems, and you're doing all that in an environment where you're being mentored and coached and getting feedback all the time, and and you're learning from some of the best clients in the world and also uh, amazing McKinsey partners. So uh, for me, it was, it was a great way to get all the business background. Um, and I arrived right at the beginning when the internet became a key element of business strategy. Um, you know, I joined McKinsey in 96, right at the beginning. Uh, and that was pretty much the beginning of the internet bubble. So I did nothing but internet for the next four years, um, which was great fun to see, to see so the guess- rise and then ultimately the, the decline. And and really interesting because, you know, there's a lot of people talking about potential corrections. So I'm just thinking, like, based on what you've learned and, and you know, maybe some data and, and things like that, like, what have you learned about, like, this type of, um, I would say, uh, market cycles? And, for example, like, how would you suggest or recommend entrepreneurs that are listening to go about them? That's a great question. Yeah, I've been through two of these market cycles. Um, I graduated in the middle of the uh, recession in 91, 92, and that's when I chose to go to graduate school. Um, and then, of course, the, the internet bubble burst. And then, you know, if you count 2007, that's actually the third recession, although that's not so specifically tech-focused. I think the biggest lessons are, you know, really think about your business model and think about what drives your growth and how dependent are you on CapEx spending or one particular customer or something being a hot topic. Um, if, if the answer to any of those that you're very concentrated on a few customers or one customer, that you're very dependent on some trend that is going to end, um, that's all risk factors. And I like to think of it as, you know, we want to have a, a model where with scale, we get to profitability very clearly. It's not a bet on the future that, you know, something's going to happen to make us profitable. It's, a, it's part of our strategy. Uh, definitely raising more money before the downturn. It's almost impossible uh, in venture capital to raise money in the middle of a downturn. Everybody shifts to focusing companies they already have, not not investing in new companies. Um, and then thinking about how do you diversify your risk. You know, for us, at, at, uh, we're an AI company. Um, we decided to go across geographies, Japan, Europe, and the U.S. early because that diversifies. Um, our risk. We have very different business cycles. We also decided to go after aftermarket and retrofit our AI capability to commercial fleets rather than wait for autonomous cars. Because there's a billion vehicles in the world today, but 15% of those are commercial. That's a huge market we can go after today, make money on. Uh, We sell a service there. It's a SaaS service. And so it allows us to be robust no matter how long the transition to autonomous takes. And and when I started NATO four years ago, you know, 
you could get estimates of anywhere from it's here in two years to it's it's never going to happen. Most estimates at that point were 15, 20 years out. Then everybody got excited two years ago uh, and thought it was going to happen really soon. Uh, now the pendulum swung back a little bit and people have realized that getting really good autonomous driving is actually really hard. So everybody's pretty much clear it's going to take several more years at least now. Um, and we're not we're not really that close. But for us, that doesn't matter. And, and that's really my advice to understand entrepreneurs. Build a business where you've got a gradual step-by-step plan um, that allows you to grow and you're not betting on something that's not under your control coming into play. And you find customers. We started in in the taxi space as very early adopters, family-owned businesses. And then we progressed to logistics and services and goods delivery. And that diversification is also very good for us uh, because, you know, now if you're a taxi company, business is not looking so great. You're under threat from, from ride sharing, from many other dynamics, scooters even. Um, but at the same time for us, last mile logistics is booming uh, because everybody's ordering everything on, on Amazon um, and it's all being delivered overnight or same day or next day. Um, and so that space is growing like crazy. Got it, and and we're gonna get into into Nauto just in just in a little bit. So let's not let's not like go right into it, uh, Stefan. Let's uh, let's let's continue here on your background because I think it's really amazing. I want to really understand why did you decide to become a professor and leave McKinsey behind? Great question. Yeah, I uh, was working with a lot of very large companies internationally. Um, and it had been amazing the previous decade building up new businesses for them, mostly around uh, disruptive technologies, clean technologies, solar, LED. But I could see that there was another level of change coming. And at the time, I was looking at three spaces, energy, transportation, and education. And, uh, you know, the, the life of a McKinsey partner is pretty crazy, right? You're, you're on the road all the time. And you've got multiple projects. Uh, it's pretty hectic. So you don't get a lot of thinking time. For me, going to back to Stanford as a consulting professor was great because it allowed me to give back, share with the next generation of students. Uh, it allowed me time to really think and explore what I wanted to do next. I knew I wanted to do something new and, and innovative, helping these uh, new disruptions and new technologies come to life. But I didn't have a business plan yet. Uh, and it was during those years at Stanford that I got a chance to, first of all, debate with a lot of fantastic students, but also do my own research on the economics of these disruptions. Ultimately decided transportation was the biggest and the fastest disruption. So that's that's where Nauto came from, is those, those two years at Stanford thinking very hard about what's going to happen in this space. At that time, you know, it was a radical idea that autonomous sharing, electrification, and connected vehicles would all coalesce uh, into this amazing mishmash of ride-sharing, but but autonomously driven electrified service, and plugging into both micro-mobility at one end and public transit at the other end. Um, and I did a bunch of modeling back, this is now seven, eight years ago, and gave a talk called ACES to describe where that was going, and then settled on data and being able to understand these dynamics in real time through AI as the right entry point um, and using safety as, as the initial value proposition to say, we can keep you safe. We can get you back home every day. Um, that, that was the, the benefit of being at Stanford. You have time to really deeply explore without yeah. the day-to-day uh, pressure of, uh, of a McKinsey job. So talking uh, about exploring and about starting to really think about the idea and creating that canvas and, and what colors the canvas is going to have, because ultimately as a, I think entrepreneurs are like artists, you know, like they're just like painting this canvas that starts from nothing. 
So yes. how did that how did that canvas from nothing, you know, develop into something uh, for for you and 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 really led to 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 incubating this this idea? I, I, I like your metaphor, except a big part of being an entrepreneur is you, every once in a while you got to take the eraser or paint over a part that you already did. <laughs> so. Yeah, in many instances it looks like an spaghetti mix, but hey, you know, it's all about making it work. That's right. That's right. Oops, I, I really needed a different color here. Um, yeah, so it it all started with that with that soaking thinking time at Stanford. Looking, I was using public data sets at that point from California, from the federal government, and began to realize that the, that uh, first of all, the public data sets are always lagging behind because they're driven by the census, and and real time data is locked up in a handful of big companies that have you know either control over the phone or control over maps. Um, and how could you get large amounts of data? Uh, looked at almost everything: in ground satellites. Um, drones, all of which somebody has tried since then, of course, but became convinced that the vehicles themselves are the best platform for collecting data in real time, and that the way to get permission to do that is to provide an immediate benefit. And that was really the genesis of our focus on driving safety and on saving lives and reducing collision costs. Now, so that became our mission from the very, very beginning. Um, you know, the, the initial canvas was was we took an old dining table and set it up in our garage um, and begged my family for permission to take over the garage. Um, and uh, so that's where our, our company started. First three or four people um, all hired into into the garage, which is ironically about two blocks from the from the much more famous HP garage. Our HP started in the 1920s. Um, and that's where we started looking. We built our first prototypes. Uh, we started driving around with them. Uh, we started looking at what are the different use cases, and we discovered some great uh, um, data sets, both in the insurance industry and um, from uh, Virginia Tech Transportation Institute, <clears throat> which showed where the sources of collisions and the sources of loss come from. And then we used those insights to begin to prioritize our roadmap uh, and develop our first application scenarios. becomes pretty clear, and this has really become a, a huge part of our mission, um, that the most mobile I started with forward collision warning 15 years ago. But the number one root cause of those collisions has nothing to do with the car in front of you, has to do with the driver being distracted. So we began by focusing not just outward looking at the risks, but inward looking at the, at the human driver and seeing could we warn them, could we help make them better, coach them, uh, give them an alert when they were distracted at the appropriate time. Um, and, uh, and that has worked wonders. We're seeing huge reductions way beyond our initial goals and expectations. Over 50% of the losses removed today uh, before there's any autonomy. Our devices don't take control of the vehicles. They're, they're simply there to help assist and, and augment the human driver. So, so uh, let me ask you this, Stefan. Who were those three or four that you convinced to work in your garage? Yeah, great question. Uh, one was a, a good friend of mine and a buddy from McKinsey um, who um, Worked in a lab building his own equipment for many years, had done uh, some other startups on his own, uh, totally unrelated spaces. The second actually was my uh, college roommate from uh, when I was an undergraduate at Stanford. Uh, and he's a designer, had been worked at many fantastic companies over the years, uh, but convinced him to jump in. And then we hired a guy who is uh, still actually with NADA to this day, uh, who came out of uh, the uh, federal labs, uh, physics labs, 
and uh, had an incredible diversity of programming, building, uh, electronic software development. Um, and so that was the initial crew. We, we grew very rapidly from there. We hired a woman who uh, was an expert in insurance. Uh, none of us knew much about insurance, but obviously if you're going to reduce collisions and losses in the commercial fleet world, uh, insurance is an incredibly important partner in that. Yeah. Um, as well as then our first product managers and additional firmware and software engineers. Um, so it was, I remember those days fondly, although I will tell you, um, it was scary. We, we did not know uh, what we didn't know at that point. And, and I'm glad we didn't because maybe we would have been scared off. <laughs> I hear you. I mean, that's that's typically the case in in most in instances. So so you know, you guys are are really working in 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 this environment, like really uh, innovative stuff. There's a lot of hype right now around AI technology. So so let me ask you this question, Stefan. What does AI at its best look like? Yeah, I, I think AI really is about implementing a part of what we can do as humans. Uh, you know, most of the exciting applications are around perception tasks, right? So recognizing things, classifying uh, scenery. In our case, it's about recognizing dangerous situations, either because outside you're about to hit something or inside you're you're not paying attention when you're about to uh, get into a dangerous situation. We also detect things like drowsiness in the meantime, so you fall asleep. Um, AI is a great tool. Um, I believe that there are at least as many, if not more, applications of AI uh, complementing, helping, assisting, augmenting humans. We're a perfect example of that, right? We don't we, we don't displace driving at all. We simply make driving safer and easier um, for for the expert human drivers. Uh, but if you think about autonomous vehicles, that's the other application of AI, which is you're taking a task entirely out of human hands. Uh, to basically create more free time and and more uh, luxury uh, and convenience. So in that case, you're taking over all of driving uh, if you're building an autonomous vehicle. Uh, the exciting part for us is we don't need to wait for full autonomy to get a lot of the benefits. You know, we we can cut your insurance costs. Uh, we can cut your number of accidents by more than half uh, with the same vehicle you already have today and already own today. Uh, we simply retrofit a small amount of sensors and compute with AI embedded in it, uh, and that's what allows us to function. The other great thing about AI is, you know, it, 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 all of us as human drivers basically have to spend, statistically, it's about six years learning to drive. Um, and you can see for a teenager, you know, depending on the country, 16, 18, when they start driving, it statistically it takes about 2.8 collisions and six years to learn how to drive properly. That's when you go back to normal adult risk. But for AI, uh, we do that training on the collective experience of all the vehicles. Um, and so we may learn something in New York that we can apply in California, or we may learn something in the winter in, in Michigan that we can apply in the Sierras here in, in California. Uh, and that collective data set allows us to learn much faster uh, and, of course, ultimately more reliable from all the best drivers, not just from one or two, uh, and building that into the AI capability. So I'm a huge believer in humans informing how AI should should um, run and, and what good looks like. Humans are the role models. Our best human drivers basically never cause a collision. We, we want the AI to learn how to operate like that. But conversely, AI can also make the humans better. So if you take your average driver... Uh, they're distracted once every 11 miles. Um, a, a significant portion of those 11 
um, distractions every 11 miles turn into very high-risk near-miss situations, uh, and then a small portion of those turn into an outright collision. And so we want to avoid uh, and reduce those incidents and help those drivers get, get to be as good as the best ones. Really cool. So I guess in terms of, um, of monetization, because I've seen that you score really big partnerships with, uh, with companies like BMW or GM, how do you monetize? Uh, how do you guys monetize? Yeah, we have most of our business today is working directly with commercial fleets. Um, so big package delivery fleets, uh, people in the passenger transport space, uh, taxis, ride sharing. Um, and there it's basically a monthly safety service that you subscribe to. Uh, we put one of our devices in your vehicle and then and then you pay. Um, the payback is very, very quick because basically we reduce so many of your losses and incidents and collisions. Uh, that the device pays for itself in a in a matter of months. We also have a number of insurance partners, some of which are, are public, uh, Allianz, Sampo, uh, that are basically incenting fleets to put our device in so they get a reduction on their insurance premium uh, that essentially makes our device uh, free uh, for the fleet initially. Um, and then allows them both to gain in the in the savings. So that's our that's our core business today. Where this is headed, though, is to, to use all of the experience from all those professional commercial drivers. And as I mentioned, train the AI up to learn from all of them and then use that AI in the safety systems that are being built into production cars. And you mentioned some of our OEM partners, uh, GM, Toyota, BMW. We're working closely with them on enhanced uh, collision warning systems, on enhanced driver assistance systems. And both kind of level two, level three vehicles uh, where we're making uh, those vehicles smarter, more aware of their surrounding and of the driver's state. A, a famous problem in autonomous driving is, okay, the autonomous car can handle, you know, the easy highway cases, but can get stuck with a situation it doesn't know what to do in. The standard approach now is to turn control back over to the driver. But, of course, to do that safely, you need to know what was the driver doing right now. If they're asleep or if they're reading a book, it takes them some time. Uh, to get back engaged in the in the driving task. Um, so those are the areas. That's a bit longer time scale, working very closely with our uh, auto and, and truck maker partners uh, to build the technology directly in um, so that you don't have to get a, buy a device anymore at all. It just comes as part of your vehicle. Really cool. I mean, with all the um, lives that are being lost uh, on the road, you know, I'm sure that, that this is going to make a huge difference. And, and one of the things that I saw here, uh, Stefan, is that you started in in 2015 the um, the business and 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 it was like really interesting to see that right away literally on September you guys raised your your seed round i mean it was just like immediate almost so so how much and i and i would assume that for an operation like this is quite capital intensive because of you know developing the technology and scaling up and all of that stuff so so how much capital have you guys raised today yeah, all in, uh, we've raised um, over $174 million. Um, that's across all of the rounds. You mentioned the seed round. We had a number of angel investors. I put in some of my own personal money at the very beginning, uh, funding our, our first uh, purchases of equipment. Um, we then had our Series A, which was led by Playground, Andy Rubin's uh, fund, uh, along with uh, Draper Nexus and Index and a number of the uh, automotive uh, companies that, that are partners. Um, and then we raised our Series B led by Greylock and SoftBank um, two years ago now. Um, and so that was our that was our latest round. Yeah, because the, uh, uh, the investors that you guys have, Stefan, is, is very, 
Very impressive. I mean, just for the listeners so that they know, I see Index, Greylock, SoftBank, um, like you were saying, Playground. So I guess even General Motors uh, has Investor or BMW Ventures. So I guess the, um, how did you meet these guys? Um, it's a mixture. I mean, a lot of them I knew from my McKinsey life in terms of the bigger companies. Um, a lot of it was also reaching out, getting to know people. We, from the very beginning, um, took a view that this is an open ecosystem and that we need to work with partners. You know, there's a lot of startups uh, in the last couple of years that have that have started with a vision of being all in vertically integrated. We're going to build the car, design the systems, operate the vehicles, build the AI, build the sensors ourselves. And I think, you know, if if uh, your company is called Google, you can do that. Uh, but if you're a startup, I don't think you can you can bite off all of that by yourself. So we took the opposite approach from the beginning. We said our core expertise really is the AI capability and the learning and the understanding of driving behavior and driving risk. But we want to work with other people who are much better than we are at building the cars. We want to work with insurers who are much better at understanding risk and pricing risk and providing a great uh, insurance product. Um, and that was a, a message that really appealed. You know, people were excited about the safety potential, the immediately tangible loss reduction, you know, going in when, when 1.2 million people are killed every year, sadly, on the roads, saying, I can save half of those today. Um, you just need to deploy very simple technology um, and affordable technology. That got their attention. Um, and then we took a very partnership approach. We're, do we're doing the development together. Um, you know, we're open to licensing our capabilities to third parties uh, because we know we're not the, you know, we're not the best way to go to market only through a small company. We want this technology available to everyone and be embedded in as many vehicles as possible. That's our mission. We're all about the the safety and making driving safer and smarter. Yeah. Well, one thing that, that you know, I, I see and, you know, from all the um, the entrepreneurs that, that I either interview or that I know is that the... Um, a business like this, I mean, it's, it's, it's at the beginning. I mean, now you're obviously in this rocket ship, but at the beginning, it's quite risky because there's a lot of investment that needs to happen up front, you know, in order to really, you know, start to see profit and, and start to understand that, you know, things are going into the right direction and that you're going to survive. So I guess, I guess for you, at what point, you know, what's the point that you said, we're going to make it? Yeah, it, we know we had some near-death moments early on, right? Um, when could when you, could you share one 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 of those moments with us? Well, I'll I'll share one, which is between the seed round and our Series A, the, the period that you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, we had some initial seed investment that allowed us to get prototypes out. We had uh, shipped phones all over the world to run prototype software to begin to understand driving in the desert and crowded Asian cities in the rural countryside, and that was great. It was it was great input for our algorithms uh, and development. But you have to remember, and it's kind of hard to, to picture this nowadays, uh, this was an era before um, autonomous vehicles was a household word. And so um, when we started out raising our Series A, um, I talked to over 60 different investors, including some very good friends, um, who all turned me down for one reason or another. Some didn't like automotive. You know, no one's ever made money in automotive. Why would I invest in that? Some didn't like the fact that we had hardware. Silicon Valley has, has very much focused on software-only plays, right? SaaS, cloud is all very hot. Uh, but anybody that had any hardware dimension, even though hardware is not the core of our product, we do require 
a retrofit for a vehicle to get the sensors that, that we need as input. Um, and so there were a lot of people who, the moment we said, oh, there's a device, I said, no, thank you. Uh, and so I wound up uh, self-funding the company for a period of time. All the executives uh, took no compensation for a period of time. Um, and we, we were really uh, running on the edge. Um, how, many, how, and, many people, how many people were at that point in the business? Um, a little bit shy of 20, probably 16, 17, something like that. Um, okay. you know, it was a, it was a good sized startup for early stage. Um, and it was in that environment that, that we ran into uh, playground, um, and they are focused on AI deep learning. Um, they're all ex hardware makers from amazing companies, right? Android, Apple. Um, and so they were not scared about hardware. They were not scared about AI. And a couple of them had worked in uh, automotive companies before as well. So they were not scared about automotive. And the irony is they had internally had a discussion. Oh, we should, we should give a free dash camera to people to learn what driving looks like. And we showed up with a model that basically says we have a great dash camera with AI embedded in it. So it actually adds value to the driver and can help protect them. And therefore, people are willing to pay for the service. You don't have to give them away for free. And so they fell in love and, and the rest is history. But that, that, was, uh, you know, that was about a year into Nato's life. Um, we nearly died at that stage. Um, and the irony is a few weeks after uh, we closed our Series A, uh, two things happened that changed the entire landscape. Uh, one is Tesla announced the uh, over-the-air update of the autopilot software. Uh, and as much as it's maligned for uh, overstating what it can do, uh, I have a Tesla and I, I, I've tried it many, many times. It's a great initial achievement to say I can actually drive on a highway without having to steer and, and uh, take control the whole time. That got people's attention because that meant you know some version of autonomy, even though it was a, a relatively basic one, was now live in the field. And then if you recall in that time, uh, around the same time, I think difference of about, a, about one week, uh, GM bought Cruise for a billion dollars. Um, and all those VCs that had said, I'm not interested in automotive, suddenly changed and said, oh, but I am interested in autonomy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so many oh, of them came back and said, weren't you doing something <laughs> in autonomous? <laughs> and I said, yes, we did. So, <laughs> Unbelievable. And, and, and just out of curiosity, as you were speaking, when, when do you think we're, we're going to be able to just see completely fully autonomous cars? You know, it, it comes in phases. I mean, there are fully autonomous vehicles on the road today, right? Waymo is running some in, in Arizona. Um, you've got um, Uber giving rides in, in Pittsburgh. You have May Mobility in the, in the Michigan area, uh, Voyage. The, the thing all these have in common is they're limited to certain conditions. It's low speeds, generally 35 miles per hour or less. It's within a geofenced area, so you can only take certain trips. You can't say, you know, take me across the country, right? Most of them are pretty limited neighborhoods. And um, it's in an area that they've highly mapped and studied and, and test-driven in. Uh, and it's limited also by the conditions. They're, they're not on crazy traffic jams. You know, they're not in the middle of a snowstorm. Um, and so... That sense of autonomy, the first kind of baby step examples, they're live today. Um, I think we'll see that continue to spread gradually, geographically. Uh, you know, Cruise is, a, is very ambitious in wanting to drive in San Francisco. Uh, and they haven't enabled commercial service yet, but we definitely see their, their test vehicles on the road today. Uh, that's a more challenging environment, big city environment, lots of pedestrians, lots of bikers. Um, 
you know, no one has has dared to go to New York yet, but Manhattan would be kind of the next step challenge. Um, and then maybe one day, um, you know, Bangalore or other other cities in India or Africa that are even more complex, uh, more stuff going on on the road. The other dimension is um, what's happening on highways. Uh, and so we'll see more luxury cars have, uh, you know, evolutions of the Tesla autopilot so that you can do highway driving more or less on straightaways following the lanes automatically. Um, there's a number of European car makers that have launched with that capability now. Um, and then the other dimension there is trucks. Um, and that's a huge market because similar to what, what we do at Nauto, augmenting human drivers, you know, as a truck driver, staying awake for eight, 10 hours a day, driving lots and lots of miles is, is challenging. And your, your pay is limited by how many hours you can drive, which the federal government restricts for safety reasons. So you don't fall asleep and get too exhausted. But if you could, like an airplane captain, uh, put the truck on autopilot for the many, many miles of backcountry interstate and drive the first miles and the last miles uh, and handle the loads, the inspections, uh, making sure the truck's safe. Now suddenly you can actually make more, more money per day. Uh, and so I see that as a big application for freight. We're in a lot of um, truck and last mile delivery vehicles today. Again, we don't, we don't drive. Uh, we're only warning the drivers. But we have a lot of interest from truck makers and truck component makers uh, to build our algorithms into their systems directly so, uh, to head, so in that, head in that direction. So, Stefan, so then how big is the operation of, of NATO today? Well, today we're, we're in three continents, uh, Japan, North America, and, and Europe. Um, we have a couple hundred people. Um, and uh, the vast majority of those are AI and computer vision and data scientists uh, working on the algorithms. Uh, we do design our own hardware, very much like Apple. It's designed by us and then manufactured in, in China. Um, and we have a large sales and customer support team uh, in all three of the regions that, that we operate in that helps customers adopt the technology, but then more importantly, use it uh, to improve safety. And we see, you know, very impressive results. And I have to tell this story. When I started Nato, you know, back in the garage, we set a goal when we first said, we're going to focus on safety as our first uh, application. We set a goal of in the first 18 months of deployment, uh, reducing uh, damage and losses uh, and collisions and, and therefore ultimately fatalities by 20%. And so 18 months, 20%. We hit 35% reduction in month 12 of deployment. Um, a short while later with a real-time alert capability where we're warning the driver as they get into a dangerous situation or as they're getting distracted. We crossed 50%, and really we haven't found the limit yet. I mean, obviously there's some limit. The, the last 5 10% will require full autonomy where the, the human is no longer, the human error element is taken out uh, of the system. Um, but we now think we can get to 70 maybe even 80% reduction. Um, still having a human driver, but but helping, assisting them. Um, that's very exciting. I mean, if you had told me two years ago, I'm going to give you 80% of the benefit of autonomy for $500, uh, people would have laughed. Uh, but now we have the data to prove it. Really cool. And and for you, Stefan, this is um, your first really like meaningful rodeo as, a, as an entrepreneur. And I think that the, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, would you say that's that's accurate? It's it's my second rodeo, but the first one was a little tiny pony. This is a real horse. <laughs> okay, so when so when we're thinking about a real horse, and you know, being the jockey of this, I mean, the the learning curve is is pretty steep. I mean, we have 
probably a lot of people that are listening right now that that they're probably taking like the reins for the first time in their life, in their professional career. So I guess based on on perhaps like the lessons and, and that steep learning curve, like what would you suggest, you know, to the people that are listening that is their first time around? Like what 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 kind of like absolute like must, you know, they need to keep in mind as they're building their business? Yeah, I have a lot of uh, lessons, hard hard earned. Um, the first is, you know, you got to really focus on what's your initial product, right? What does it do? How does it become compelling, right? The, the proverbial MVP. In our case, that really aligned very closely with our mission of saving lives and improving safety. Uh, and that really inspires people. The second is, and I can't overemphasize this, be very careful in how you choose your team. Um, you know, and, and both the skills they bring, the experience, but also how much time you spend together aligning on what you're about. Um, we have had some amazing experiences with people that that made Nauto much better than it could have been without them and have taken us beyond uh, the original inspiration and, and vision through their talent, through their capabilities. But we've also made some mistakes. And and my lesson in hindsight is if you have any doubt, if, you know, in that interview debrief, one of you saying, hmm, this could be an asshole, um, stay away and, and make the decision. No, it's not worth it. Um, you know, we've had only a few of those have been very lucky. But each one, there was an early warning sign where, you know, we weren't sure. And, and now we have a, a cardinal rule. If you're not sure, just pass. Um, I think the third area is very early on, build yourself a network uh, of partners, of supporters, of advisors. Uh, we invested in, in having a, an amazing board early on. I uh, insisted in our Series A uh, that we have an independent board member, um, Karen Francis, who's a longtime GM and Ford executive, ran her own startup company subsequently. And she has brought a wealth of knowledge. Uh, we're lucky to have an amazing woman on our board. Uh, our VCs, uh, of course, as is, as is so common in the industry still, are uh, mostly men. Um, and so that perspective of thinking through marketing, thinking through how the how the drivers and the customers will experience the product. Um, it's been a great addition, plus her amazing network in the, in the auto industry. And so I give that. Why an independent board member? I mean, what's the, um, I mean, I, for the people that are listening mainly, you know, like why, why would you bring, or why would a company bring an independent board member? And what would you say? I mean, you were kind of like alluding to it and, you know, the details and everything that, that she's able to, to bring to the table on marketing and other areas. But what would you say that also makes an independent board member effective? It's it's the background and skill sets and perspective they bring to the table. It's really that simple. Um, you know, they, they're... VCs have typically grown up in tech. Um, some of them have been operators, but not all of them. Um, you know, occasionally they have experience in an industry outside. Uh, but for us, that that depth of immersion in the automotive industry, you know, when I go to Detroit with Karen, um, it's like a reunion. We meet people on the street. They're like, oh, we worked together 10 years ago. So that network, um, there, I don't think there's any VC that, that could bring that level of networking capability. And then there's there's just a degree of focusing on um, other functions. In Karen's case, a lot of that has been uh, marketing skills. Her early background is from Procter and Gamble. You know, she ran a multi-billion-dollar marketing and advertising budget uh, when she was at GM. So, that kind of knowledge and background of uh, how you do think about the consumer is very different. Um, 
from the way the tech industry thinks about customers who are usually in IT or engineers. Um, and so bringing that capability in a business-to-business context, because we're serving fleets, we're not, we're not serving consumers, uh, but still bringing that understanding of a, of a different industry. And then I just am a huge believer, I, I focus on this in our executive team as well, that diversity makes the company stronger. You need to have that alignment around the vision. All of you are passionate about the same mission and the same goal. But within that broader mission, uh, you want to have as much diversity as possible so that you don't have blind spots. If, if you hire people that are all like yourself, uh, you will miss uh, really warning signs. You'll miss subtle cues, um, and you'll make bad decisions. Got it. Got it. Really cool. And and you were alluding to the um, to some of the tips and and recommendations that you would give to to first-time entrepreneurs. But there's one question that I always ask a guest that I have on the show, and that is knowing what you know now. I mean, it's a, it's been an unbelievable uh, journey uh, for you and, and for Nato. I mean, uh, really highs, lows as well, as you were pointing to. But definitely, you know, this is heading in the right direction and, and a rocket ship. But, but now, looking back, if you had the chance to really have a conversation with your younger self, with the younger Stefan, before launching the business. If you had one piece of advice that you would give yourself, what would that be and why? It's a great question and, and one that I've thought a lot about. You know, what would I change? What would I do differently? Um, I think the main one is, is, was my second point that I already mentioned, which is be even more careful in picking, you know, your first dozen, first 20 hires uh, because that establishes the culture you're setting norms for how you make decisions, for what good looks like, for how you uh, deal with difficult trade-offs. You know, we have we have challenging trade-offs all the time. You know, people who um, want to deploy our technology into a uh, into a country where uh, it will be used uh, for purposes that we don't uh, endorse. Um, you know, it's very easy to, to misuse a dash camera as a spy camera. Our system is designed to sure privacy because of the artificial intelligence and really only intervene when there's a safety situation. Uh, but that's the other people out there want to use cameras for other purposes. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, and so how do you as a team make those decisions? You know, I've made that very explicit in our recruiting. I made that very explicit in our fundraising. Every single board member knows, you know, if there, if there is a dubious uh, question or dubious customer, uh, you know, we will turn business away and accept that we grow a little bit more Right now, we've got so much demand that, uh, you know, we, we, <laughs> we can't even handle it all. Uh, so that's not slowing us down at all. Uh, but in our past, certainly, uh, we have faced decisions where we've chosen not to do things because we wanted to do it right. Uh, and we wanted to make sure AI, particularly early uses of AI, are done with great ethics and great concern for equality and for privacy. Um, so that's my biggest advice. Um, the other is... Um, you know, you you will never have enough hours in the day, enough energy to do everything. Um, and this is really, this comes from my my good friend and, and mentor, Reid Hoffman. You know, as a startup CEO, you're always picking which fires to, to address and which ones to let burn. Um, and nothing will be perfect around you. Um, and, you know, we've matured a long way, so we put out a lot of fires in the meantime. But our first couple of years, um, you know, we knew there were a lot of things we, we had not yet gotten to fix. Um, that's changed a lot in recent years as our team has grown. Now we can actually put people on, you know, figuring out how to make the, the installation process easier or figuring out how to make the, the graphic interface uh, easier to understand. So that's one of the things you earn over time uh, as you grow, get more capital, get more, uh, your team grows. 
you can begin to polish and refine and, uh, and one aspects follow, of the product. That one follow-up uh, question there, Stefan. Uh, really interesting what you were sharing about making decisions and and look, if you have to go grow a little bit slower, you know, you you do that. But I guess in in that aspect, you know, especially for for the folks that right now perhaps are dealing with with very important decisions that may impact the course and the nature of their business in the future. What is typically your process before you actually make the decision? What does that process look like? Um, I get advice. I mean, I'm very, I'm very open with our executive team. You know, we debate uh, all of our major decisions, and I want to get that diversity of viewpoints. For us, uh, we also have very much a working board. Uh, our board meetings are not, you know, dog and pony show report outs. Uh, we bring and tee up our toughest decisions and our big debates, um, and we give our point of view, but we also get input from the board. Um, I open every single board meeting. This is another thing I would recommend to every entrepreneur. Once once you have any kind of advisor, board, advisor group initially and then board a little bit later usually, um, I open every board meeting with what's working, what's not yet. And that level of candor establishes a tone that builds trust, gets everybody on the same side of the table working through these issues. We have gained tremendous strength from our board uh, because these board members, not only do they have experience and input, but they have networks. They have um, a, a, a network of people that they can refer in for hiring, for expertise. They can make introductions. Um, that has substantially accelerated our growth. And unless we're clear what's going well and where we're struggling and where we still have gaps. You know, we need an introduction to this particular fleet, right? Or we're looking for somebody with this expertise. Um, then you actually allow the board to help you. Uh, and I think many early CEOs make the mistake that they think their board is like a boss that they've got to make sure they look good in front of. My advice is, you know, share with your board all of the good stuff, but also the things that you're wrestling with uh, because they are here to help you. They're here to help you make their investment successful, to help you grow. Um, I always ask for feedback at the end of each board meeting, and I love the feedback I get, uh, the good, the bad, and the tough. It helps, it helps me see where are there still areas where I can improve, where my team can improve, um, and then it allows us to act on that before it becomes an issue in the field with a customer or something we missed. That's great. That's fantastic. Well, thank you for, for sharing that, uh, Stefan. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, basically, uh, email uh, Stefan at Nauto.com. Amazing. And do you have Twitter or maybe LinkedIn? I'm on both LinkedIn and Twitter, yeah. Okay, fantastic. And what's Under, the Twitter handle? Uh, Stefan underscore Heck. And on LinkedIn, if you just go to LinkedIn slash Stefan Heck, you'll get to me. Amazing. Well, Stefan, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Great. Thanks for having me. And I hope uh, for all of you that are listening uh, that you're enjoying being an entrepreneur and that you'll all be successful. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.